So I graduated from high school, and my dad had bought an old junk portable roller coaster, and he had mounted part of it on a big truck with a big trailer. So I graduated high school, he says, Jerry, here, this is a billboard magazine. And if you look in here, it has the routes of all the carnivals and ads for carnivals that have booked a big fare and need extra rides. And that's where you can take it to make money. So I get in the truck by myself and I go all summer from carnival to carnival, different carnivals. So I got to see different carnivals, know them. I have to set this thing, and I had to fix it. Hell, the lights didn't work on I had to do all that. Didn't have a ticket box, I had to make that. Well, I came home at the end of the summer, and I'd lived off of it. I'd spend money fixing it up. And I'd give my dad a bag of cash, more than he had made the whole previous year. <laughs> so that made me think, well, you know, this may not be a bad business. This is Of Note, a podcast on innovation. I'm Laura Quarter, Managing Director of South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation. And I'm Joseph Nuther, co-founder of Design Sensory and Pop Fizz. We're talking to some of the most interesting minds in the South. They're hands-on, they're driven, and they're sharing their notes on business and creativity, entrepreneurship and leadership, failure and growth, and so much more. Picture this, flashing lights, bright colors, waving flags, the smell of deep fried food, screams of excitement off in the distance. You're at a carnival. Now, what rides do you picture? A Ferris wheel, a merry-go-round, and maybe the most love it or hate it ride of all, the free fall. And while we all may have not experienced a carnival in a while... The same vibrant scene was on full display in the basement of our guest, a serial entrepreneur and inventor of the freefall ride. When we set foot inside Jerry Barber's South Carolina home, it was more of a museum of antiquities and artifacts collected from generations of life lived at a circus and a life well-traveled. It was as if our crew stepped into the warehouse scene from Indiana Jones, except instead of biblical artifacts, there were remnants of circus rides and carnival ephemera. You can't have a collected home without a trophy wall. And Jerry's trophy wall was something quite unique. Dozens of framed U.S. patents lined his walls and provided quiet testimony to his decades of innovation and invention. Each item had a story to tell, but we realized the best stories were told by him. His stories were reminiscent, yes, but they were also about the future, a vision for how decades-old know-how can literally help preserve our environment and power the world. My name is Jerry Barber, and I'm chairman of the board of Barber Wind Turbines. And we're building a totally different type of wind turbine. Ours is 800 kW. That's 800,000 watts. That's enough for about 300 US homes. But what I've done, I've taken the technology from the amusement industry, and I had built amusement rides for 18 years. I grew up, my dad owned a traveling carnival, so I knew that business very well. And I looked at the big three-bladed turbines, and I read somewhere that 80% of their maintenance problems is that gearbox. And the gearbox is the size of a small car. 
and it costs a quarter million dollars every time you change one out every three to five years typically with a rebuilt one. Think of this new wind turbine as a 200 foot diameter bicycle wheel, okay? And the rim actually has three tires that runs a generator. So there is no gearbox at all. No gearbox means no oil. And all of a sudden without that hot oil, one of the big problems they have, hot, you mix hot oil, high voltage, and they have fires. And when they have a fire in one of these, it destroys the whole thing. We don't have any oil. We have nothing that burns, okay? Instead of the three big blades, we have eight inch blades on all the bicycle spokes. Ours lays down and can stand a Cat 5 hurricane. No other wind turbine can. So as a result, our big, big market, we've already just, just got an order for six for the Caribbean uh, because they are very, a little bit sensitive about hurricanes. Advancing the technologies that move industries like renewable resources forward, Jerry's work is truly fascinating, albeit somewhat technical. However, what's truly remarkable about Jerry's story is its humble beginnings, his eye for innovation, and how his small team can implement such a large change in just a decade. And we're a very, very small company, okay? There's really only three or four of us right now. Now, we use a lot of consultants. We got a lot of help from Georgia Tech. University of South Carolina. We built a prototype a couple years ago. We learned a lot about it, made a lot of changes. And of course now, what has, you can call it a, a one-year delay if you want, we made the decision to go with DNVGL certification to get a wind turbine certified. Only the really big boys do this. It's no different than getting a jumbo jet certified. They got to look at every nut and bolt and one thing that's nice, once it's certified, it's bankable. It means that banks will, without questions, they will finance it. Insurance companies have no problem insuring it. If you, if you don't get that, then they all have to look at it very, very carefully before either one of them will do anything. Do you all license the technology or do you actually build your, your turbines yourself? Right now, we're handling just the sales. And we've, we're jobbing out. Uh, our blades to Newberry, South Carolina, where they are pull-treated. I use a lot of pull-treated fiberglass on amusement rides, because on amusement rides you can't put wood because it rots. And so we were very familiar with that. We are having our turbines actually built in Concordia, Kansas. That's two hours north of Wichita. And that's a big factory. They're doing all the steel work, okay? Now the panels, the software, and all that is being done here in Easley by Patriot uh, Automation. When we built the prototype, the technology was all the electrical switching gear and circuit breakers and all that were mechanical. That's what I knew, that's what I grew up with, that's what was available, well really three years ago when we started making the prototype. Well, that world has changed just like cameras have changed. All that stuff now is digital and it all talks to computers. And the beauty of it, if something goes wrong here, it can tell me, it can notify me on my cell phone. As we all know, technology changes quickly 
And as Jerry mentioned, that same principle holds true for even wind turbines. So how will the renewable energy industry as a whole change and adapt with technology? The fastest growing right now by far is wind. Everybody's figuring out that's kind of the way to go. And you're gonna see that continue to grow. You talk 20 years out, most people don't realize how fast technology is changing. And a lot of that's because of the internet and the cell phones and the ability to connect. And universities all over the world are doing research on batteries and different energy. I mean, it's really gotten to be huge amount of money. You gotta look at who's putting money into all this. The militaries are, automobile companies are, the cell phone companies are, because all the universities are. So say 20 years out, I would say 20 years, we're probably gonna look at fusion taking over. Fusion energy, in short, is a form of energy generated by a nuclear reaction. It's often called the energy source of the future and perpetually promised that it always will be. But since we've sat down with Jerry, news of fusion energy moving from science fiction to reality has come out. Some saying that by 2040, 20 years from now, it'll be here. Jerry isn't looking ahead, but way ahead. So what makes someone at 70 want to start something so progressive like wind energy while betting that something even more progressive is on the horizon? You know, my whole life, I've never, even now, I don't think of myself old. To me, old age is 10 years older than I was, no matter what my age was. When I was 10, a 20-year-old was old, okay? So I'm 80, and I think 90 year you gotta be 90 to get old. And I have to say, I've been lucky with my health. I do everything, and I mean everything I did when I was 40. And I get as much work done in the day. In fact, I get more done in a day today than I did in a day when I was 40 because I didn't have the internet. I didn't have any computer programs or didn't have a computer. I didn't have a cell phone. I mean, even transportation, there wasn't, when I was 40, you know, you didn't just jump on an airplane. Let's get a lay of the land here on wind energy. Um, wind energy in the U.S., first of all, the U.S. is, is leading the way as, as countries are concerned from a standpoint of using wind energy. Um, we are the top country uh, that, that uses it for electricity generation. About 7% of the U.S. electricity comes from wind energy. And with, with respect to renewable energy, about less than half of renewable energy comes from wind energy. So it's very relevant in conversation now, and it, I'm, I'm sure will only gain in relevance uh, as we continue to see a, a, a switch from, from fossil fuels and gas and coal to renewable forms of energy in the future. Now, there, there are many positives to wind energy, but there are a couple of disadvantages to it. Uh, the first is it's somewhat unpredictable. The wind is unpredictable. The weather is unpredictable. We all know that. You don't know when it will happen. You don't know how much you can depend on it. There's not really a potential sense of being able to plan for that. But the other couple of issues with it uh, pe that people have are noise, looks, and cost, reliability. Um, and, and the gentleman who we spoke to here, Jerry, um, is trying to deal with all of those other disadvantages. Uh, he's trying to simplify the mechanism. He's trying to make it look better. And he's trying to make sure that it generates less noise, less friction, less movement 
um, so that it becomes a more reliable form of energy. Laura, how is his technology different? Yeah, so Jerry shared one major advantage to their, their wind turbine, which I think it's also important to note that their wind turbine is actually designed for offshore usage. Uh, in fact, I think when we were there, they were talking about how they're excited about a new project down in the Bahamas, which, you know, for them, when you think about the the usage of a wind turbine there with their hurricane propensity. What's actually really cool about this is that their wind turbine, it's mounted on a barge, so off the coast, and it will actually fold down. Um, so you've got this this big wheel, you know, that he described, and then it turns off of the wind on a barge, um, that, you know, should they need to, it can actually fold down and actually come be placed right back up within 24 hours and be back up in productivity. Um, some other things as it relates to their wind turbine. Uh, so like you said, there's no gearbox. Uh, there's no yaw bearing. There's no electrical slip rings. Uh, no tower sitting on the seabed because it's, it's on a barge. Uh, no large expensive blades. Overall, because of all the innovation that they've put into this new wind turbine, it's 50% less uh, of an overall investment. Sounds like what he did was kind of come back to one of the principal rules of something. He simplified the technology. Yeah. And, and, and the best part is it's where that inspiration came from, the carnival world. So you're, you said your dad, your dad was... Uh, uh was in the carnival business. Yes, that's correct. Uh, how, what, what, what kind of influence did your dad have on you? I feel like you've learned so much about how to build things, how to make things based on your childhood. Yeah, well, let's go back. I was born before World War II. The whole World War II, my dad worked for Robinson Myers the whole time making parts for the Norton bomb site which was our number two security or right below the nuclear atomic bomb. I mean, that was the big, big deal. So he literally never, never came home from the factory. Um, but then dad was always building things. You know, he uh, started out by rebuilding some kiddie rides and taking them out to little celebrations. They built up a, a nice sized carnival. He somehow or another ended up buying a quarter mile dirt stock car track and running that. So he's running them both. So I was around machinery, you know, I've, you know, totally overhauled a car. I remember taking, changing by myself, changing the crankshaft in a semi truck parked along a ditch somewhere. You know, when you grew up on a carnival back then, you fixed everything. And there was nothing digital. The word digital you hadn't even heard of yet. Uh, so, yeah, I got a lot of mechanical background, and then I started building some rides on my own. Much of Jerry's hands-on knowledge comes from his childhood and traveling with a second-hand roller coaster from Carnival and City to Town and Fair. That one teenage summer would lead him to developing his own rides, but not before going down a much more typical path first. You ended up going to Ohio State, um, at that point, it, uh, did you know you wanted to be a teacher at that point? I was going to major in chemistry, okay? And that was fine until the spring of the year and the chemistry lab stinks and it's so nice outside. So I went the extreme the other way. I decided I switched over because I've always loved animals, the outdoors and so forth. So I changed my major to forestry. After the second year of forestry, dawned on me, you know, 
When I graduate, there's really two jobs available. I can stay in the Eastern United States and my job is supervising people to pick up trash. Or I can take a job out west and if I want to go to a movie, I got to drive four hours. So then I looked at all the courses I had and they were offering, it's called Comprehensive Science and Education, which meant I'd be certified to teach physics, chemistry, biology, math courses, and so forth. So, yeah, that was a security blanket. During his time as a teacher and a student, Jerry was already returning to his roots and experimenting with ride ideas and amusement attractions, even creating a fun house out of an old apartment. But it was his ideas for rides, and ultimately the patents for them, that would get his foot in the door. Not wanting to sit back on royalty checks for his mechanisms, he took a job at the largest ride manufacturer in the country, ultimately starting his own ride company. But I'm jumping ahead. How did you learn how to be in business? How did you learn to be a businessman? After I graduated and taught school for three years, became a high school principal for three years, and I went work for work for the largest ride company, and I saw, you know, the manufacturing operation. But that happened because they licensed they they bought your idea. They, right? Yeah, they patented my they licensed my idea. They paid me a royalty on all of them, and that's where I got the money to start the ride, my own ride factory. Instead of spending that royalty, because I was getting a paycheck, and I was still in my twenties, and so I could save that money, and then I decided to. And I actually spent uh, three months saying, where's the best place to live and build rides? And I picked Raleigh Durham to Atlanta. I went and stayed in Charlotte for a month, drove all around. Never been to Greenville before, didn't know anybody. I liked it the best. Hindsight, it was the best choice. I think probably the biggest thing that I figured out very early about running a business, there's two things that counts. Number one is the ability of the owner to find, get, and keep good people. And two, remember, running a business, you're only doing one thing all day long. You're selling. You're selling your employees why they need to stay extra hours. You're selling a supplier why he needs to give you a better price or earlier deliver. Not only selling your customers to buy your product, but you literally are spending. So you have to learn to be a salesman, and you got to keep your people. And... You're like, here's where, and I learned this very early. When I uh, hire people, the last thing I always say to them, there's two ways you can get fired around here real fast. I says, I know you're going to have disagreements, we're going to have fights and squabbles. But if that's not over, not settled, back to normal within two days, I'm not going to live in a cat fight. Well, they all understood that. The next thing I say, there's another way you get fired real fast. Don't make any mistakes. Now they know I've lost my mind. And I said, let me explain that to you. I'm hiring you because your brains, your experience, the fire in your belly. What I want you to do is have the freedom to see where we are and go out and try to improve it. And if you try new things, I promise you, they're not all gonna work out. You're gonna make mistakes and I will back you. Now, I don't expect just pure dumb, you know, I expect you to use some common sense. And when you do make mistakes, I want you to teach everybody else so we don't make the same mistakes over, 
But one thing I was always able to do is get the employees very engaged, as engaged in the company as I was. And that's what made the companies always grow. We are honored to have our podcast, Of Note, recognized with a 2020 Webby Honoree Award for our debut season. The Webby Awards is the leading international award honoring excellence on the internet. Awarded by the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences, it's the internet's highest honor. You can help us continue to grow the podcast by subscribing, reviewing, and sharing with your friends and colleagues. So if you remember, we started out at his office. Yeah. And and we kind of, you know, it, it was, it, it, I mean, it, well. Your standard office. Standard office looks good. But he was kind of like, you know, we were like, hey, do you have, is, there, is there another place where we can shoot that has, has a little bit more Do character? you have a patent? You're one of your, one of your cool patents oh, handy. Yeah. yeah, and his face lights up. And he invites us over to his home. Which was just like, I don't know, like a half mile away. It wasn't far. Yeah. And so we're like, okay, what? We'll, we'll give that a shot. And. Um, what happens for the rest of the day is something I don't think we'll ever forget. We, we left his office and really we climbed into Jerry's world, his, his, his carnival yeah, world. Yeah, his carnival world. And we walk in and we decide to, um, film in his, his basement. But if you walk into his basement, you are on one side met with a wall that's probably got over 50 know. frames, right? Yeah, easily. Of, of patents. Um, U.S. patents, uh, for international things, patents, international patents, all up on the wall, and then as you come around this, the the room um, and just kind of walk through it, you you are met with relics of what carnival, yes. classic carnival is, with the this giant pink elephant head. And it's like Jerry's wonderful world of. <laughs> Of curiosities and, and collections and what did you antiquities antiquities yes um, you're, you you what do you there was an elephant head on the wall from like one of his rides and all these different kinds of carousels with lights and you know you go upstairs there's just things from his worldly travels of like from Asia and it's just it's it's almost like its own uh, um, oh what's the ride from Disneyland uh, it's a it's, it's a, a it's a small, a small world. world that's yeah. almost what it felt like there were small little pieces of what Jerry's you know life has been like and the and the projects he's he's done was all over his home on display yep. you know big beautiful portraits of of his family and it's just you could have spent hours just walking through and and it was a museum he also has has lived a well-traveled life as you mentioned uh he he had pictures up with with many dignitaries and and heads of state um he 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 regaled us on stories of when he was in 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 Russia, I guess in the eighties and nineties, um, he, he was sent over there because they were interested in some of his technology or one of his patents for energy and helped work. I guess he was working between the United States and Russia helping, uh, on some other infrastructure at the time. Um, so he had some amazing stories then and the artifacts to go with it. Um, he's, he's truly a larger than life, uh, character isn't he yeah and like, i mean how i i think anybody would want to know how do you still do the things you did at 40 at the age of 80 well age doesn't seem to matter a whole lot to, to jerry i think he looks at his 40 or 50 years uh of work and realizes that he's got so much he's learned so much he's figured out that he's willing to 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 share 
with everyone else about how to be innovative. What is one of the proudest achievements in that period for you? I came up with the free fall ride. Now, we actually got an order from Carowinds and I ran the numbers and I could get it built, but by borrowing all the money I could, stretching everything, because it was way too big a ride for size of company we were. And I looked at it and I said, you know, if we get it built, we got any bugs, we can't stand behind it. So one of the best things I did, the largest ride company in the world still is, is Intamin in Switzerland. So I met with the president, I licensed them. And they built those rides until the patent expire, where they're still building the ride. But every time they shipped a ride, I got a check for 50000 which was kind of nice. And I actually didn't spend that money. I started finance company financing amusement rides, and that became the largest finance company in the U.S., and my son runs that now. So, you know, I've taken always taken these royalties and put them to work. I was taking my two oldest boys and my wife, and we were headed to Myrtle Beach, and they had stopped and go to the bathroom. So in Columbia, just the side of Columbia, used to be a 76 truck stop. I happened to pull right up to the sign. I didn't have to go. So they all go in. I looked at the sign. I said, you know, it'd be a neat ride if you just jumped off the top. It'd be a little bit of problem when you hit the concrete. So that was the start of it. And I had to figure out how you don't squash when you hit the bottom. And so I figured that out. I got a patent on it. Every amusement park in the world has four standard rides. There's the Ferris wheel, the merry-go-round, the roller coaster, and the free fall. There's almost no exception to those four. The first three were all invented and built in the 1800s. The only ride built in the 1900s is the free fall. If you got an idea, first of all, the law changed, I don't know, four or five years ago. It used to be it was first to invent and someone could file ahead of you, but if you improved, you got friends can, can verify that you invented it, it's still yours. Now that's not the case. It's first to file. So now if I come up with an idea, I'm not gonna tell you because you could go file it. Now I'll tell my patent attorney because that's it. So what I do now, first thing with got an idea, I'll tell my patent attorney. Then I do what's called a provisional patent. And a provisional patent runs for one year. During that time year, you can make some changes. You can still say it's patent pending. You're protected. But the clock hadn't started running on the patent yet. Now, at the end of that year, you either pay to go for the patent route or it's gone. How many patents do you have? U.S. patents is up around a little over 60, I think. And then, of course, there's a lot of foreign patents. But the foreign patents aren't really new inventions. They are the... the U.S. inventors, I want to get protection in different parts of the world. It's obvious you're a man of ideas and action. Do you work with a lot of people to come up with these ideas, or, or are you really an, an, at heart an inventor? That, that's a real hard I don't sit around and try to invent anything, um, but I, I try to be observing, and I, I'm always looking for a need or a little niche, and then... I can lay in bed and figure out a creative way to do it. But just like on the uh, the wind turbine, 
you know, there's a, a thousand little details that's different on this turbine that have to be figured out. And usually you can come up with four different solutions and then all of a sudden one becomes obviously the best. Well, you know, what's crazy is the last time I got a paycheck, I did not write myself, I was in my 20s. I can honestly say I don't ever feel like I've ever gone to work. I don't even think about it, I just go do it because hell, if it's not fun, I'm not gonna do it. I've had failures, but I think uh, rather than let myself get down on a failure, I just, and this is a mental game I play with myself. I say, okay, I don't wanna just correct this failure. Whatever I come up with has gotta be better than whatever it was before. And I don't care if a part breaks, I don't wanna just fix it. When I fix it, I want it to be a better part. So I've always taken those things. I mean, Tammy's my third wife, so I've had two failures. Well, each time I did better. <laughs> <laughs> that is the most, I've never had that answer. <laughs> Laura, this topic of patents and intellectual property, intellectual property protection, uh, comes up often in these conversations with these innovators. It's not surprising. And in season one, we met several people who provided advice. I think if we were to sort of average them all together, they say, you know, share your idea. Yeah, very pro-share. Um, they do that for, I think, a couple of reasons, right? They, 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 I think one, uh, I remember John Desjardins uh, speaking about, you know, when you share your idea, um, you, it, it sort of field tests the idea, you know, it's, it's, it's so that it, it prevents you from being overly myopic or getting input early on. Or you had a more colorful way of putting it. I think like, you know, nobody, nobody would have, nobody wants your idea as badly as you do, just like your own baby. Yeah. And I think that I'm trying to think through also others, uh, Nancy, um, I think she, she talks about, you know, also subjecting your idea to scrutiny mm -hmm. in an effort to make it better, right? And almost uh, it's kind of like nonchalant that, you know, yeah, there's paperwork to take care of that. And I, yeah, and you can kind of do that concurrently right. to while you field test it. Uh, I think other sentiments were, were, were interesting too, that just the idea probably from a more philanthropic standpoint, which is that, you know, there, there, I think it was uh, Gabby uh, Roslyn. Um, from, from, from Gabby's bows, who just said there's so many ideas that are just out there and, and kind of in the grave, in the graveyard, right? Yeah, because that the graveyard's like the richest place uh, for ideas. Because people never shared what they were thinking. Yeah. So I think it's interesting that we've heard sort of the opposite end of that argument, maybe around, uh, you know, sharing the ideas, you know, and the fear of someone taking it. Um, I have to say, from my personal experience, you know, I've had a few people try and make me sign an NDA, and I've just told them, "Look, I we won't ever get anywhere if you think about the number of entrepreneurs I sit with. You know, I can't take this to um, our attorneys every time. If you if you want help, you just you got to have some faith that I'm here for you and not to take your idea." Um, I would say that's a pretty common case with most of the incubators and accelerators throughout the state. They're not in that same position. They, they have people literally walk off the street looking for help. And if the first thing they do, the entrepreneur does is shove an NDA in front of them. It's kind of, it's a little, I'm not gonna lie, it's a little off-putting. It's like, we've got bigger things to tackle than your, it's a, it's a matter of trust. If you don't trust me from the get-go that, right. you know, I'm here as a resource for you, then we fundamentally, we're probably not going to be the right place for you. For you, yeah. I mean, Jerry, to his credit, has hundreds or uh, uh, what tens of 
I think, to, and Jerry, to his credit, has has tens of upon tens of patents. He's gone through this process obviously many mm. many times. So he he's probably well versed and and an expert um, by virtue of his experience on this. So I, I think it's it's fair to say that um, there might be a difference in the context of of when. It, when and how formed the idea is that you know that that's kind of the difference between people saying shared and not. It seems like if, if, if it's a relatively unformed, unresolved idea early on, it might benefit from additional conversations with people to sort of help form it along. Whereas I think Jerry, um, very technical mind, he's a very technical mind. He's already so, kind of the visualization of yes, how it's going to look like, how it's yes. going to work, and he's figured you know, it out. In yeah, some ways. and he's, he feels ready to pull the trigger of you know, let's just go ahead and patent and take it. it. Yeah. So I think there might be just, uh, uh, you know, details there that, that might differentiate the, the context between uh, everybody's advice on this one, but there are resources. Yeah. If, if you're an entrepreneur out there and you're just curious if your if your idea has already been done or, you know, looking for even inspiration of patents that have expired, that you can actually move on a product, uh, I'd actually encourage you to check out the patent and trademark resource center at Clemson university. It sits within their RM Cooper library. Um, so you can actually even make an appointment with this with this group. Uh, her name is Jennifer Groff. Um, so you can actually reach out to her directly via phone, uh, 864-656-4782. Or of course, you can find them under the Patent and Trademark Resource Center's main website. How do you define innovation? A lot of it's just getting a lot of experiences and different things and being very observing and figuring out what needs to be needed. And one final lesson from Jerry on innovation and the art of selling. One of the things I did with a, a stepson that told me you need to sell, I'm gonna take you out. We did this two Saturdays in a row, all day Saturday. I said, now here's the deal. You've got, you, you don't have any money, but imagine you got $2,000 and you're gonna buy a used car. And we're gonna to go to every car dealership in Greenville and you're gonna tell them, I got $2,000 and I wanna buy a used car, what, what you got? And so what you're really doing is you're, you're using that salesman as your teacher, because when we leave, you're gonna give me an evaluation of the job that salesman did, what he did right, what he did wrong, while we're driving to the next one. At the end of the day, he says, I can't believe how bad most salesmen were. I said, but damn, a couple of them were really good. So I'm getting across to him the difference. And everything you do, you know, it's not just how much money you make, it's how much you can legally save on taxes and how you spend it to get the most value out of that money. And again, all that is selling. Someone asked me you know, when I'm gonna retire because I am 80 years old. And I told him what I told my wife the other day. I said, I told her, when you bury me, be sure my cell phone is charged. My name is Jerry Barber, and those were my notes on innovation. This has been Of Note, a podcast that gets up close and personal with innovative people so we can learn from their successes and failures. I'm Joseph Nuther. And I'm Laura Quarter. This is an original production by the South Carolina Office of Innovation and Design Sensory. 
Our producer and editor is Hunter Foster, with additional editing support from Mariah Reed. Our sound engineer is Mike Deering, with original music by Matthew Honkinen. Check out more interviews, our blog and resource area at scribblesc.com. You can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram at ScribbleSC. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.